here today with Belly Bagdamon. Belly, thank you for coming in. It's good to see you. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about your time at Haverford School so far. You're in your second year, and I'd love to hear a little bit about how that's going for you so far this year. Absolutely. Jake, first and foremost, thanks very much for having me. You know, uh, I, I, I'm glad I'm glad to finally have the honor to be to be on the podcast and um, to, to answer the question. This is my sophomore season, my sophomore campaign at the Haverford School second year. And uh, one of the biggest takeaways that I've seen is the power of this brotherhood. Right. A lot of a lot of boys schools nationally talk about how in difficult times boys need to come together and support and uplift one another and i think that given the current state of affairs um both domestically and abroad i'm seeing our boys here at the haverford school work together um to get things done to get things done so love it so i'm enjoying my time i was thinking i you might be the first conestoga pioneer on the podcast which is uh which is good stuff <laughs> <laughs> so Absolutely. We got a shout out, you know, Irish Road, 200 Irish Road over there in Berwyn. Our, our alumni status at the Conest at Conestoga Senior High School um, is quite the privilege. It's quite the honor to be to be the first Pio um, to make it onto the podcast. And, uh, you know, I, I'll wait for my I wait for my gift certificate to come into the mail. But um, but but, uh, you know, as fellow alums, Jake, uh, it's hard it's hard not to recognize that we were the fortunate few. We were one of the few um, to go through that high school and have direct access to, to a, an industry and in education um, that Conestoga prepared us for, right? Uh, I'm thinking back to, uh, I'm thinking back to the woodshop classes or driver's ed or the English classes upstairs on the third floor, um, reading of mice and men and, and talking about geopolitics and history class. And Mr. Hurd, of course, we got to shout out Mr. Hurd over there in, in, in the U.S. History Department and, and uh, David Zimmerman and, um, and, and uh, Miss Meisinger, the uh, uh, the president, Wendy Tao over in the school district building. It's it's a it takes a village, and I'm not using that term lightly. I wouldn't be in this position if it wasn't for for my time and experience at Conestoga, for sure. I agree. When was the first time that you really knew that you loved history, that history was kind of your thing? So we're both, you know, now we're both at prep schools, all boys schools, you at Haverford, me at Gilman, and, uh, and I'm teaching my first year of U.S. history. You're teaching some U.S. history this year. What was the first time that you really knew that you were interested or passionate about this subject? So we were in John Hurd's 10th grade U.S. history class, and uh, I'll never forget, we had a project on the Gilded Age in America, and I learned about Andrew Carnegie and the captains of industry and robber barons. And um, I realized just how big of a scope U U.S. history was and, and inspired me to, to study it. And uh, I also took a course on uh, education there at Conestoga and um, through the daycare that we had on the first floor. And uh, that was definitely inspirational. It was definitely an inspirational experience. What are you teaching right now? What are your courses at Haverford right now? Good question. Uh, I teach it all, Jake. I teach it all. Uh, last year, I taught the ninth grade 
ancient world history course. This year I'm teaching the 10th grade modern world history course, the 11th grade US history course. And then I designed, proposed and taught uh, my elective on African-American studies uh, here at the Haverford School. And I'm looking for I'm looking for other opportunities to keep growing the curriculum. Wow. So you've got four, you've got four preps. Got four preps. Wow. Yeah, uh, well, this year I have three. This year I have three. And last year I had three. But when you really think about it, I actually just left. Uh, I was I was covering for a colleague in ancient world history, a course that I'm not teaching this year. So, um, you know, I will wherever you want me to get in, I will fit in. <laughs> well, I am teaching three preps this year, and I, and I have to say I actually love it. It's a little bit more work. It's a little bit more preparation, but it keeps me busy. You know, I'm, I'm constantly learning about U.S. history and connecting what I'm teaching in U.S. history to my American literature class, and then I go to my leadership and character class, and I can take some of the words of wisdom from these people, you know, from history and bring that into a leadership class. It's great. It's, it's – uh, it's entertaining for me as a teacher, I think. It, the mind is not a cup to be filled. It's a, it's a fire to be kindled. And by challenging yourself with history and literature and leadership, you're putting more logs onto the fire that are just going to keep burning. Um, and I was actually just thinking about you earlier today we were talking about transcendentalism in the Second Great Awakening. And I know you might be a week ahead of me in U.S. history on the Jacksonian era, but uh, the, the transcendentalist authors, Henry David Thoreau and Margaret Fuller and Emerson, man, I mean, I need your help here. I, I, I might need to come to Mr. Scott's American Lit class and, and learn a little bit about Emerson and that writing style. The invisible um, eye. It's, it's tough. The invisible eye right so, there. Yeah. The invisible eye. Invisible eye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the mm -hmm. best. Walden Pond, and I need to get into that a little bit more with my American Lit class. We've been uh, we've been busy with Catcher in the Rye recently, and um, um, but transcendentalism is is one of my favorite units to teach. It's great. <laughs> well, J. D. Salinger, you know, um, and it's inspiring to find that student, you know, to find that one student or a few students that, uh, uh, that gravitate to that curriculum. Um, there's always that beautiful scene in Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams, where he's talking about why we write poetry and why we read literature. Um, and being able to experience that, you know, that's what keeps, that's what keeps me going. I don't know about you, but that's what keeps me going is to find those moments where, where a young boy or a young student um, can, can find themselves in the curriculum, find how they are represented through, through scholarship and through word. So one of the things that I learned early on in my teaching career was how different various teachers are in terms of their style in the classroom. And I personally would love to be in a belly bag and bond history class because I've been around you coaching lacrosse and I kind of know your style explaining the game of lacrosse to, to younger players, but I'd love to hear you just kind of describe your style in the classroom and what's that, what that is like. Like, what do you try to do 
you know, on a given day in a history class to get the students engaged and with you and, and interested? Wow. Wow. Uh, million dollar question here, you know, and I, I don't want all, I don't want the entire world to know all of my secrets, but I'll give you, I'll give you what I can. I'll give you what I can. Um, seriously though, but I, I do my best to imagine myself as a 15, 16 year old. And there's a lot of criticism about the star on the stage, the teacher who's lecturing the entire time uh, compared to the interactive or engaged classroom or the flipped classroom is, is the, 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 the lingo in education. I try to strike balance, Jake, and just whether it's on the lacrosse field, running midfield or attack, or whether it's in the classroom, um, even across historical curriculum, I try to strike a balance of, of whose voice is being heard, whose voice is not being heard, right? And why, why? Who's, who, if we're reading a primary source, who's advantaged by writing this, by writing this literature? Who's disadvantaged by writing this, by writing this passage of literature? Um, the other thing that I love to do, Jake, and this is, this is my honest to God secret, this is what I take to the bank, is I try to make my students laugh. If you can laugh, if I can find something that you can connect with by, by calling Christopher Columbus by his initials, CC, right, or Thomas Jefferson by his initials, TJ, and getting boys to laugh at history or laugh at the curriculum, the second you laugh, all of your reservations and your barriers are washed away. And now you are a malleable student. So whatever I can do to find the riddles or find the jokes or find, find the nuances that get children or my listeners to laugh, that's where I, I, I find I'm able to be at my best as a teacher. That's a really good point. I think humor in the classroom, it goes such a long way. And I think it, I think it goes a long way, not only in your relationship with the students, but also in helping them learn things. Like today, we're talking about Andrew Jackson, who's obviously a very controversial president and really mm -hmm. interesting to study for, for those reasons. Because, you know, people who lived in his era, a lot of people said, wow, this is the, this is the common man's president. He's speaking the voice of the, of the people. At the same time, he was a you know slave owner, and he was the man who, who you know wrote the documents that removed the Native Americans from their homelands, you know, and um, I think I, this wasn't really a joke, but it was kind of a colloquial way of talking about him to my students. I said, yeah, after he was inaugurated, he had a rager in the White House, and he did. He had a <laughs> he had a massive rager. He had Project X in the White House. He did. And I think, you know, if I give them a quiz next class, they might remember that he's the, he was thought of as the common man's president for that reason, because he had everyone out, no matter who you were, over to his house, a farmer, you know, mm -hmm. he wanted everyone involved, seemingly so, but, you know, obviously there were people left out of his vision for America, too. What a polarizing figure. And in the year of our Lord, 2023... You know, the, the, the motto of the jackass president, right? He's the jackass president. 
And, you know, when we think of the spoils system and the second national bank and the kitchen cabinet, right, coming off of the, the, the previous administration's uh, executive term, the turnover of, of secretary of state, of uh, defense, well, not defense secretary, but other, other cabinet positions, Andrew Jackson, like him or lump him, is a critical figure to analyze to better understand our current our current moment right and rager right using that word ragers i mean it, i'm sure that that student in the back of your room who might not be who might be checked out so to speak he hears that word all right whoa now i need to dial in i need to dial in and i need to I, instead of leaning out i need to lean in mm-hmm. and i need to get more engaged in what's going on because you know i think you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to your dad. I'm thinking back to my parents, right? We were always talked to in a way that was above our head, right? We were always, like, we always had to behave and act older than we were. Yeah, thinking about that, you know, uh, it's funny. I think my dad and, you know, I think about you too, the way that you both coach uh, had such an impact on me because, yes, you, you, you know, you speak a little bit above the player's head so that they have to reach for something. But my dad was so good with his analogies. You know, he would always say to my lacrosse teams, he'd always say to my lacrosse teams growing up, you know, to get angry about the other team coming onto your home field, he would say, you need to pretend like those guys just came into your house and stole your iPod. Like he would always use the iPod because it was, you know, it was the biggest thing going back then is everyone had little shuffles or nanos or whatever they were. Those guys stole your iPads, and <laughs> that got us fired up. <laughs> I've always admired the flea, aka uh, Peter Scott from a, from afar, um, for a long time, and and I guess my brain works like an analogy. Um, there was a a Swedish educational philosopher by the name of Jean Piaget. And in 1936, Piaget uh, discovered the the theory of cognitive disequilibrium, where any new information that is given to us as human beings, we either need to assimilate to that information, we need to like put it into a folder that already exists, or we need to accommodate to that information. Meaning if it doesn't fit into a pre-existing folder, we need to create a new folder in order to file it away. And analogies for me are ways to take new information and then file it into something that's already existing or to create a new folder and compartmentalize it there into a new folder. So you'll hear me make ridiculous connections. You'll hear me make connections between Chick-fil-A and the rise of captains of industry in the early 1920s, where you'll hear me, like you'll hear me talk about how fantasy football is a corrupt bargain, and you know how uh, uh, it it correlates to the rise of the carceral state in the United States. You know, like it's the, all these connections. To me, they might make sense, and sometimes I try to to streamline it for my students. I call it, and oftentimes when I go through that, when I go through those, those, uh, those moments, I call them the Bagbanon tangents, right? <laughs> Is I'll be in the middle of a lecture 
And then an idea will come to me and it's like, boys, stay with me. This is a Bagbanon tangent. And I'll take two minutes and I'll go on this tangent and then I'll do my best to connect it back to the curriculum. And, you know, you've heard it before. The best learning is done on the tangent. So so I, I'll take I'll take my pride there. I'll take I'll take my pride on the tangent. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, I uh, I try to do that a little bit, too, in, in classes, because I, I think you're right. The whole time that you're teaching and the whole time that I'm teaching, I'm imagining what it's like third period, right before lunch, these guys are getting tired, right? I, I Sometimes I think of teaching as, you know, the hardest sales position because, first of all, they're teenagers. Not every single one of them, and most of them aren't immediately interested in Martin Van Buren coming in about it after Andrew Jackson. Like, today I had to sell my students on why this, this guy is slightly significant and we should care. You know, and, and that's a hard job, especially third period before lunch. What what you guys have for lunch today? <laughs> um, I had a salad, but they had, I had a little bit of, uh, what was it, pulled pork? We had some pulled pork. It's not pulled bad. Pulled pork. Nice. Yeah, it's nice. pretty good. We, we had street tacos. We had street tacos, and I had to get some rice on the side just to, just to fill it all in. Um. And it's you're right. Third period is tough. You know, the what's amazing, Jake, is how busy of a life these boys have. They wake up at six. You got to be in school by eight. Right. You're in school until three practice until six home, you know, eat dinner, homework from from seven to nine, maybe 10 o'clock. Then you know, then you're back in, then you're back in bed, wash, rinse and repeat. Um, I don't, I'm not envious. I'm not envious of how busy our students' lives are. I am, I am constantly aware of that. But if you don't know Martin Van Buren, if you fail to understand how Texas was added as a state following the Texas War of Independence and remembering Alamo, then they will always remain children. Cicero, the famous Cicero, once said, to not know what happened in the past is to always remain a child. And I don't want my students to remain children. So... If I have to sell Martin Van Buren, if I got to sell these, you know, throwaway presidents, these lame duck presidents, as we as we like to call them, then I'm looking at the bigger picture because I'd rather you understand what Martin Van Buren has done or failed to do rather than carry on in your life as if you you're oblivious or you can remain ignorant to to the goings on in, in our number one, our nation's history, but then also in a global context as well. Yeah, and so, I think I think, Martin. <laughs> I think uh, it's it's so important, you know, for whatever they do in the future, you're always going to be existing in places that that have some history before you got there, right? You're not the first person to discover, you know, the avenue down the street. There's a history to that avenue. There's a street sign. There were people who lived here before you did, and just to walk mm-hmm. around the street, yeah, that's great, but to have a deeper understanding, you know, I like to use the two-dimensional versus three-dimensional experience. It's it's a whole new experience of living. I think if you have some respect, understanding, 
you know, just a little bit of what came before you. Amen. 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 Do, do you think is the teacher's job to help students understand what came before them? Is it the parent's job to help explain what came before them? Or is it on the student to go out and find what has come before them? Well, I think, rec- I I think recently yeah. I've been... Um... I've been asking my students, I've been giving them lists of terms that I think are important. And, you know, instead of sitting up there for 80 minutes, our classes are 80 minutes long, which is, you know, again, third period is a pretty long time to be standing up there trying to shove information down their throats. I think having them use the internet, use books, use whatever resources are in front of them. I mean, they have the most powerful devices known to man right at their fingertips. I think it's a it's a really important skill to figure out how to make, you know, John Quincy Adams' stance on abolition, you know, in the House of Representatives after his tenure as president. That, when it's sitting on a piece of paper in front of you, is not interesting. But you've got to figure out how to make that interesting to you, whether it's reading a certain paragraph on the Wikipedia page, watching a YouTube video, you know, learning about his relationship with his father, how he... I think he learned 14 languages, taught classes at Harvard, studied in France growing up when he was like 12 years old. You know, this guy's a really interesting figure in history, but his name on a paper is not, it's not that interesting, right, to a 16-year-old student. You've got to figure out how to make it that way. Mm-hmm. It, to that point, I've always admired just his name, just John Quincy, I think that that's like the coolest name for a president out there. Besides Belly Bagbanon, vote for me 2034. No, I'm just teasing. But um, you're 100% right. To add on to John Quincy Adams, I believe he was also the lawyer for the Amistad ship in 1833 that uh, that had a slave revolt on the high seas. Um, and if you check out the film Amistad with Anthony Hopkins and Dijon Yonsunu and uh, Matthew McConaughey, I believe is John Quincy Adams, who was the lawyer in that. He also worked to help the gag rule, right, uh, uh, to abolish the gag rule of people not speaking out against their politicians. Um, it's, it's like, Jake, I think that as adults, we... We appreciate those little tidbits of Jeopardy knowledge, right? Those little like quirky side away, cutaway facts. I think that the institution of education sometimes gets in the way of our students really engaging the curriculum in a way that would be beneficial to them. They see it as school, as a requirement. Yes, it is a requirement, but you have, like, let's take Mr. Scott, for example, right? Harvard, right? Multiple degrees, multiple experiences. We are walking libraries of knowledge, and it behooves our students to tap into that information and pull out as much as they can with the four years that they have at these, at these, at these schools, at these high schools. Um, I, I look back, I look back on my time at Conestoga and I asked myself, what more could I have done, right? I, I wish I had gone to sit down with Mrs. Pasitti or, or 
uh, Mrs. Vivian or uh, Miss Polites in the library or, or whoever it might be and learn more from those from those people, because once they're gone, you know, sometimes that information doesn't doesn't stick around. Yeah, I think uh, I think one of the things that, you know, we see every day is just school as a checklist. You know, my students are really concerned about the quiz grade that went into the Canvas grade book, right? That's the that's on the forefront of their mind, and for good reason. You know, they go to a prep school. They've probably got pressure from home. They've got pressure to exceed, to go to a really good college. But more often than not, it's it's how can I change that grade, and it's not what can I do to immerse myself in this subject matter so that when the next quiz comes around, you know, it's interesting, number one, and I know above and beyond what is even expected of me because I did a deep dive on all of these terms that Mr. Scott asked me to, to figure out, which, again, I don't blame them to want to excel in school and to care about the grade because I certainly do care about grades and I did care about grades, but I, I think it's easier said than done as a teacher, somebody who's building upon knowledge that I already have by researching more about Martin Van Buren. Um, and, and with a subject that I'm interested in, then the, then the subject, then the student who's, you know, really into math and science, who history is not the strong suit and why was that quiz so difficult? So I do mm. try to empathize with my students, but I also think there is a, there is a requirement. There is a threshold that you have to meet in terms of figuring out a way to make this subject matter interesting and important to you. I agree. That's a good observation, Jake. That's a very solid observation. I I struggle with that. Um, I, I don't know how it is down in Baltimore with the down there at Gilman. The, I've noticed a massive shift into STEM education, math and science education. And I have no problem with that. I know that that's the direction that the world is going. Um, and I think we spoke about this recently about the Forbes uh, survey of high school and middle middle school age students who have recently been reported to be at the lowest understanding of civics in the past 40 years, in the past 30, 40 years. And I'm not saying that civics or history or English are more important than other subjects. That's not the, or math and science. I'm not saying that. It's just balance. For me, it's balance. Can you do the Pythagorean theorem and the quadratic formula, but also explain, right, how Reconstruction's failure led to uh, the rise of, of the Nader period in American history, right? The darkest hours of American history, right? Can you do both, right? It's it, not, to, not to beat a pun on the head, but are you ambidextrous enough to go righty and lefty. Can you do both? And if you can't, then let's work, let's work together to do that, right? It, it, it's no advantage to you to only be, to be one way, to only be fixed on going in one direction. Balance is the name of the game for me. And that's what I tell some students who might not find history exciting. I think it's a really good point, and I think uh, I think it applies to a lot of things that I'm seeing, you know, from young people. Is the the um, there's a book called Range, which is really good, and people have brought that book on this podcast a lot. And it's how uh, people who specialize in certain things 
tend to fall behind the generalists in, in a lot of areas of life. And the generalists are the Renaissance men, the people who can, you know, mm-hmm. can excel at a lot of different topics at the same time, which I always really respected, like the Ben Franklin type, the person who's a scientist, an inventor, a diplomat, and a writer all at once, you know. And um, I think that is in part the mission of both of our schools is to raise uh, renaissance men, people who, you know, have wide interests and wide talents and are not just doing the, the one sport all season long and really good in the math classroom, right? That, that you know, that only goes so far in life. You need to broaden the horizons as much as you can. And, you know, it's easier said than done, but I think that's what both of our schools are set up to do. Agreed. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I have nothing to add to that. That uh, that should be the soundbite. That's that if I were to build a school, that would be the motto is is Renaissance men go forward and serve, you know, something along those lines, you know, is is balance. It's just balance. Um it, balancing our checkbooks, balancing the the work and life balance, balancing, you know, how often do I go out with friends or, or, or do I stay home balancing practice? It's we're I think inherently these, these ivory towers of academia are, are manufacturing people that need that that are learning how to balance even if you don't think that you're learning how to balance you're still learning something you're still learning that skill of taking five different or six different classes throughout a semester um i'm sure in each class there's a balanced approach you know we're not focusing only on colonial history in this class where it's a survey of balancing all of american history or all of american literature um, in all of its different forms. So well said, I, I need to check that book out range range. Yeah. So they use, um, they, I think they begin the book out with Roger Federer versus Tiger Woods. And I forget which one, you know, focused on their sport for their entire life. I think it was Tiger Woods and Roger Federer played multiple sports growing up soccer. And, you know, and it's just a commentary on the different choices you can make in terms of specializing in something versus, you know, doing a lot of different things, avoiding injury and avoiding burnout. And, um, yeah, it's a great one. Range. Tiger versus Federer. I'm on it. And speaking of books, um, I wanted to – I don't know if this is a good time or not, but Perfect. I wanted to – I wanted to pass along um, – my book recommendation for for the Gilman podcast. This book is titled Don't Know Much About History by Kenneth Davis. And one of the big things that I take away from this book is textbooks can oftentimes be dry. They can oftentimes be, be boilerplate uh, and a bit mundane. And it wasn't until my undergrad experience uh, at Washington College and uh, my graduate experience at Villanova University where I started to revisit American history and I picked up nuanced details that weren't in the textbook. 
right? Like, let's take, we're, we're about to sit down for Thanksgiving soon, right? And that's a special day. Um, but many people don't recognize the Wampanoag Indians, right? Or their, or their harvesting skills, right? Many people might not uh, look at Christopher Columbus the same way. Many people might not look at um, uh, the, the, the state of affairs that led to the war on terror during 9-11 in a particular way. So Kenneth Davis does an excellent job of framing just a, uh, framing questions, right? Framing questions. I'll, I'll see if I can give you a couple of examples. Um, you know, let's, let's go to, you know, the apocalypse then, to the Civil War and Reconstruction. Why was there war with Mexico? Right. How did Frederick Douglass become the most influential black man of his time? Right. Uh, what was the Compromise of 1850? Uh, by simply asking those questions. Right. And, and getting out of the textbook format. This has been my Bible. Uh, don't know much about history by Kenneth Davis. And then, if I may, I'll sneak in another another book recommendation. All right. I teach another course here at Haverford. Uh, called African-American Studies. And this is a book by an author by the name of W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois uh, wrote this book called The Souls of Black Folk. And oftentimes when I look at history and historical content, I, I have to ask myself the question, who is writing the story and whose voice is not being heard? And Throughout my, my upbringing, um, the voices of women, the voices of children, and the voices of minority groups have oftentimes been, been left to the margins. And Du Bois and Souls of Black Folk um, talks about a lot of ideologies and a lot of different theories that can help people uh, find their identity, find who they are within their spirit, um, two spirits trapped in one body struggling for for control um and a, a lot of my research outside of outside of the classroom has been spearheaded around uh du bois's work there so kenneth davis souls of black folk and web du bois uh don't uh oh, excuse me kenneth davis don't know much about history and web du bois souls of black folk thank you very much those my check those out appreciate it I like the point about um, groups that are that are not heard historically because recently we were talking about Titus Kaffer and his uh, his TED talk and I think his artwork really and I, I use this on a mini quiz with my students today because we watched the TED talk last class and I think his artwork really you know puts front and center uh, the voices that have been unheard in the African American history and. You know, one of his lines that I actually asked a question about on the quiz was, what does it mean to shift your gaze? And, and shifting your gaze is all about looking at the people who you, you know, that aren't in the main chapters of every history book. They're not the president of the United States. They're not Andrew Jackson. They're, they're the people who existed during the Jacksonian era who were very much a part of that story, right, that, that get left out or forgotten. Mm-hmm. Amen. I love Titus Kafar, as you know. Uh, I saw his exhibit at the Detroit Institute of the Arts DIA a few years ago. I actually have a Titus Kafar 
piece here in my classroom. I'll text you a picture of it later. Um, it's it's a Napoleonic pose, and and it makes you think. It's a it's a thinking piece, and you know, with Titus, with Titus, and shifting your gaze, um, we're not monoliths, Jake. You know, I, I think that teachers at boys' schools and and students at boys' schools, they're oftentimes uh, sequestered into a monolithic role. Oh, you must be a stud athlete. Oh, you must, your, your father must have all these resources in order to get you there. Um, and, and I love that phrase of shifting your gaze. And, and I think that we as teachers, my students, and I think our, our nation as a whole should try to do, should try to shift our gaze and, and, and look at things from a different perspective and walk a mile in someone else's moccasins. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's what the humanities are all about, or or what they should be about. English and history classes. They should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, man. All right, Belly. Well, let's get to just you know the end of the podcast here. I'd like to just pick your brain a little bit about the current state of lacrosse and youth athletics, and you know what you're seeing as a Division One referee. Yeah. Jake, what year did you graduate Stoga again? You were 14? 14. No, you were, on, you were 14. Okay. I'm 07. I'm, I, I'm class 07. And oh, it, since graduating high school, one of the things that I've noticed about the state of lacrosse is that players – are more interested in games than they are in practice. And I'll give you an example. In the NBA right now, you have Wimbayama, you have Luka, you have, uh, you have all these European players that are coming into the league and dominating. And part of the reason that they're dominating is because in Europe, players practice six days out of the week and play only one game. Here in the States, Sometimes that might be flipped, where there might be three or four games a week and only one or two practices. And one of the consequences of that, of something that I've seen both as a player, as a coach, and most importantly as an official, a Division I lacrosse official, is that it hurts the camaraderie of the game, of the creator's game, and it also hurts the quality of the production of each player by not practicing and picking up your stick for an hour, more players are concerned with what club teams they're on, how far they are traveling. And instead of just playing the game of lacrosse, they're looking at the sideline to see who's watching them play. Is John Tillman from Maryland there? Is Lars Tis Tiffany from Virginia there? Is Petromala from UNC there? They're looking at their, instead of focusing on the game, they want as many eyes on them as possible to play. And unfortunately, that has, that has hindered the growth, uh, uh, the accelerated growth of youth lacrosse players in my eyes. And I've, tried, I've done my best to combat much of that. I've done my best to combat much of that, um, but there's a lot to do. There's, there's more to do for sure. 
What does combating that look like? I, I'm, we're in the same camp and doing that, and you know, I help you during the summer run your camps, and we've done lessons and all that kind of stuff with younger players. But is there really? Do you think there's really a way of combating? I guess this trend of, you know, the the full season lacrosse player, the clip culture that's happening, the focus on the club team over the school team. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think that this is. It's kind of turned into what soccer was like when I was, you know, when we were growing up is you play for your club soccer team and sorry, I can't play basketball. I've got indoor soccer, right? Because it's a full season deal. So I don't think that they're, you know, I've said before, I think it is important to play other sports, but I don't, I'm I'm not somebody who says, you know, I, I think if I'm a coach and I'm recruiting a player, I'm recruiting the best player for this position possible and if you played other sports to get you to that position great and if you you know if you just played lacrosse your whole life that's okay too I'm trying to win games and I don't care regardless Mm. but thinking from the from the kids perspective you know these players Mm -hmm. I, I think the burnout is so real by the time you get to sophomore year of high school you've played so much lacrosse you've done it for so long that if you don't love it it's like what what are we doing here that's a lot Mm-hmm. So I have to cheat and I'm giving you a third book recommendation. Okay. This third book recommendation is called Slavery and Capitalism, is written by an author named Eric Williams. And in this book, he's describing how the rise of the transatlantic slave trade comes together at the most opportune time for capitalism and industry and the market revolution to occur. And after this rise in revolution, it's nearly impossible to separate the two. Essentially, that's what what led us to the Civil War. I'm hearing you describe, Jake, that that college coaches want to win games. That's how they put bread on the table. High school coaches want to win games. That might be how they put bread on the table. In order to do in order to win those games, those coaches must engage in a system, a social, political, and economic system in the game of lacrosse in order to recruit and retain the best lacrosse athletes. We all know some of the horrors of capitalism, right? We all know some of the horrors that come with that. And unfortunately, the athlete, the lacrosse athlete, has been sacrificed in terms of enjoying the game, in terms of loving the game that they're playing, in terms of becoming a renaissance player. Can you play more than one position? Can you play lefty attack and righty attack? Can you play midfield, right? Can I trust you on as a D-midi to go from defense to offense, right? Can I trust you to do those things? At Brightside Lacrosse LLC, which is we are now in our 13th year, sweet Lord, thir- 2011, in our 13th year as a company, I've always done my best to avoid the system that other club teams have fallen victim to, right? I'll give you, I, and this is what I tell many of my clients is in, in a lot of my campers is at a club team practice, you might practice for two hours. In that two hour practice, 
think about how many shots you're taking. You might take for an offensive player, you're taking maybe 40, 45 shots as an offensive player in a two hour practice. If you come to lacrosse camp, if you come to Brightside lacrosse camp, you're there for six hours a day. How many shots do you think you can get up in six hours? Right. Or if you train with one of our coaches at Brightside, okay, for an hour, you might be able to get up 200 shots in an hour. If you think about Kobe Bryant and all the best athletes, they play like they practice. They play like they practice. Kobe would be in the gym at four o'clock, 12 noon, and then 3.30 in the afternoon because he got better in practice. Okay. And not traveling to Naptown, Annapolis, or going out to uh, La Jolla, California, or up to Boston, or here in the Philly, Philly area to go sit in front of a college coach. Those college coaches, they might see one half of your club team game. That means in 20 minutes, you need to display everything that you've learned for a coach that might see one possession. If you turn the ball over in that possession, that coach is no longer interested in you. To me, why don't we keep practicing and getting better at your craft before you go get recruited? That's just, to me, I might be thinking, might be thinking a little bit too logically for the lacrosse world, but that's just my observations. That just might be some of my observations as a player, as a coach, and as, a, as an official. I would like to do another episode at some point when you're kind of mid-season as a referee just to, to get caught up on that answer because the game is changing as a lot is going on. And uh, you're, you know, you're the only person I know who has coached, played at a high level, and refereed at a high level. So you know, you're, the, you're the man of wisdom in this arena. Jake, I'm standing on a lot of shoulders. Honestly, I'm standing on a lot of shoulders and and, you know, the the lacrosse officiating allows me to see a lot. It allows me to see a lot. And, you know, for for young players out there, for young players out there who are thinking about their careers after high school or after college, um, if you love the game of lacrosse, if you love the creators game and the sport itself. I strongly encourage you to get involved either as a coach or as an official. We need more officials. Um, and I was blessed, you know, Sandy Herzlick, you know, and your father, Bruce Iketa, um, uh, may he rest in peace. Um, Rob Zanino, Scott Growney, George Waddles. Those are just a, a few of the shoulders that I'm standing on in order to pass my knowledge on to the next generation, on to the next generation of, of young boys and girls um, that I have the privilege to coach and, and train with. All right, Belly. Well, thank you very much yeah. for, uh, for coming in today and, and talking a little bit. It was a great episode. Sorry for the technical difficulties, but um, I appreciate it. And you're doing good work and uh, look forward to our next conversation. Jake, you better believe it. Thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to the next time.